0: WTBN Pinellas Park, 100.3 W262 CP Bayonet Point. Online at Let's Talk. Portions of this hour have been pre recorded for broadcast
1: at this time. Odyssey. The following program was pre recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries.
0: question is then, how can a man and a church he attends know if he's called to be one of their elders? I think that's an important issue. How can you determine this? Well, according to what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus, there are several ways that a man in the congregation he is involved in can know if he's called to be an elder in the church.
1: That's always an issue in churches looking for godly leadership. How do we know Who is going to be a good elder? We have a need for another elder on the board, but we don't want to just ask anyone, who should we approach? Well, the short answer to that one is similar to discerning the call to overseas or cross cultural missions. If you're already a missionary or a soul winner where you live, then you might be a good candidate for missions. If you're not already a missionary where you live, then you're not going to be any better at it under the stresses that missionaries experience. We want to look for a man as an elder who is already an elder in his way of living and ask him to serve officially as an elder. Some churches have several or even many who fit that description. Others, especially new churches, might have very few options. Hello and thanks for joining us today on Verse by Verse as we near the middle of this in-depth series of Bible lessons about the nature of the church. Pastor Steve Kreloff is leading us as we examine Matthew chapter 16 and the promise of Jesus that he would build his church. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. I'll tell you more about Lakeside near the end of our broadcast. Along the way, Pastor Steve has highlighted several other Bible passages that help to flesh out Jesus' brief comments about the church. But today we'll camp out right here on Matthew 16, verse 18, As we begin to clear away some of the mystery in how churches ought to be selecting their leaders. But first, a little review. Here's Pastor Steve.
0: One of the chief war cries to come out of the Protestant Reformation was the expression sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. And the reason for this was that all of the reformers believed that the number one issue of their day was the authority of the church. Did the church look to the Pope and ecclesiastical councils for divine guidance, or did they look only to Scripture? That was the issue of the day, and no reformer tackled this issue of authority with more passion than John Calvin of Geneva. Author Steve Lawson, in his really very wonderful little book, The Expository Genius of John Calvin, tells us exactly where Calvin stood when it came to the issue of church authority. Lawson writes, church traditions, edicts from the Pope, and the decisions of ecclesiastical councils had taken precedence over biblical truth, but Calvin stood firmly on the chief cornerstone of the Reformation, sola scriptura, or scripture alone. He believed scripture was the word of God, and it alone should regulate church life, not popes, councils, or traditions. Sola Scriptura, he said, identified the Bible as the sole authority of God in his church, and Calvin wholeheartedly embraced it insisting that the Bible was the authoritative, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. And I would add to that that John Calvin felt so strongly that the churches of his day should return to the scriptures as their sole authority that he began to use his influence in the various churches to make sure that altars, which had long been a main focal point, of the Latin mass were removed from the church buildings and instead right in the center of the sanctuary, he insisted that there would be a pulpit with a Bible on top of it, a wooden pulpit with a Bible on top of it so that the first thing that a worshiper would see and would grab his attention when he walked into a sanctuary was that the Bible was the central focus of that church. It conveyed the clear message that that church was governed by the dictates of the word of God and nothing else, sola scriptura. Now, the Reformation may have taken place, and it did take place about 500 years ago, but there is still a great need for Protestants to be reminded that their authority must be the scriptures, and the scriptures alone. Why do I say that? Because in our day, there are many evangelical churches who, although they say that they believe in the Bible as their final authority, they don't practice that. They have strayed from the authority of Scripture, having replaced the Word of God with all kinds of contemporary ministry devices, which have become authority for their church practices, such as Opinion polls, what are the people thinking, so let's gear our ministry to what people are thinking and what they want, or surveys of uh, demographic proportions, other church-related practices that are based more on practical considerations, pragmatism we would call it, whatever works, rather than biblical absolutes and biblical principles. So the evangelical church in America has strayed away from the authority of Scripture. And really the best way for Protestants to remind themselves that the Bible is to be their sole and only authority is to see that Jesus Christ, the master and head of the church, addressed this very issue in Matthew chapter 16. So let's turn there. We have been looking at Matthew chapter 16 for some weeks now, taking our time going through this so that we understand what this is all about. Matthew chapter 16, and we've been focusing on verse 18. We really will move on eventually, but I want to, I want to get as much out of this as it really is here and the implications of these truths. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, we read, And I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, in this statement by Jesus, we find that it is located... As we've already noted, in a a broader passage of Scripture, we never isolate Scripture from its context. The broader passage of Scripture here stresses the subject of the nature of the church. That's what this passage is about. What we find in this passage of Scripture is that in response to Peter's great confession of faith, in which Peter said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the Lord looks at Peter and tells him not only what his special role will be in in the initial formation of the church, but Jesus goes on to reveal in the process some of the unique features of the church that he will build. And that's what the passage really is about. That's the theme of the passage. Unique features or key issues and nature of the church. Now, so far we've seen two of these unique features. First, we've seen based on the words at the beginning of verse 18, you are Peter and upon this rock I'll build my church, that the church is built upon a firm and solid foundation that can withstand all adversities. And we know from our previous studies that this firm and solid foundation is the rock-like, bold and courageous preaching of the word of God by Peter primarily in the early days of the church. But it is essentially the word of God. The fact that Peter was the human instrument is really secondary. It is the word of God That forms the foundation of the church. Secondly, the second unique feature of the church is found in the phrase, I, Jesus said, will build my church, indicating that the church is under the sovereign headship and lordship of Christ himself. In other words, just as the brain controls the rest of an individual's body, so Christ functions as the controlling head of his body the church. In fact, that is the very analogy the apostle Paul uses in First Corinthians chapter 12. Christ is the head; we are members of His body. And the Lord displays His sovereign headship over the church in two specific ways. Number one, we've seen that His sovereign headship is is seen in the fact that He is the one who brings about conversion. That's what He means when He said, "I will build." He's the one who brings people to Himself. Remember, the church is not a a building, it's a people. He convicts us of our sin, he regenerates us, he grants us repentance and faith as he brings us to himself for salvation. That's how he builds his church. That's how he brings us into the kingdom. The second way that the Lord demonstrates his sovereign headship over the church is by ruling and reigning over those that he has converted, that he has brought into his kingdom. Now he's their ruler. Once they were rebels against him, now that they are part of his church, he rules over them in a special way And they have to submit themselves to him. Now, the question that we've raised several weeks ago is how does the Lord do this? How does Jesus rule his church on earth when he is at the right hand of God the Father? Well, according to the New Testament, Jesus Christ rules his church through godly men who shepherd and oversee and lead and direct and govern local assemblies, various local churches, that, uh, that are all around the world. The universal church of Christ is broken into local churches in various areas around the globe. And they each have elders in, at least that's the plan, that's the way the Lord designed this. They should have elders who teach them the word of God and rule over them. Now, for the last several weeks, we've been examining some key truths about New Testament local church leadership, which is a critically important issue. And we've already learned that in the days of the New Testament, every church that we know of was led by a team of pastors primarily known as Elders, as opposed to a single dominant senior pastor type figure. And last week we learned that these elders must be spiritually qualified to lead the church because they set the example for the rest of the church as they live out and model biblical truths before the congregation. That's not to say I mentioned last week that the that the church will never be any higher spiritually than its elders. That's not to say there aren't other godly people in the church. There are many godly people in the church, but generally speaking, a local church will never rise above the spiritual tone set by the elders. So it's very important that a church affirms elders who are godly because they are the examples. The church will follow their lead. So question is then, how can a man in a church he attends know if he's called to be one of their elders. I think that's an important issue. How can you determine this? Well, according to what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus, there are several ways that a man in the congregation he is involved in can know if he's called to be an elder in the church. So let me outline it for you. There are basically three ways to know this. First of all, that man will have a desire to be an elder. He'll have a desire because Paul said, if any man aspires to the office of of an overseer, it's a good work he desires to do. God will put a desire in his heart to minister to his people. He's not trying to uh, get this position of elder so he's in the spotlight. He really has a burden in his heart that will never be satisfied doing anything else unless he is involved in leadership in his church. In fact, I would say if a man can be satisfied with not being an elder, he can take it or leave it, then he shouldn't be one. He shouldn't be one. I think there'll be varying degrees and levels of passion and desire for the ministry. But every elder, every man called to be an elder has to desire that. You don't have to plead with him. You don't have to persuade him. You don't have to recruit him, as I said last week, saying, you know what, we can't find anybody else. We have to have you. If that's the case, he should not be an elder. Secondly, in addition to this desire To serve in this capacity, this man has to demonstrate godliness in all areas of his life. If a man says, I feel called to this ministry, but his life is so out of tune with Scripture, uh, then he's not called to be an elder. There needs to be a demonstration of godliness in every area of his life. It doesn't mean that he that he's going to be perfect. If he was perfect, uh, you could never have leaders in the church because we're sinners. But it does mean... That as you look at the general tone of his life, you see that there's no glaring sin defect that just keeps coming up so that the congregation doesn't respect him. They won't listen to him. There's no credibility and authenticity in his teaching. Now, the Apostle Paul lists about 20 areas of this man's life or the life in which a man must be above reproach. That is to say, as I said, there's, no, there's nothing glaring that sticks out in his life that you say that uh, it's out of touch with the rest of Scripture or with Scripture. So as the church evaluates this man, they, they have to be confident that he models biblical Christianity. And let me just add this to, to help you to understand how we do this at Lakeside. The way that an elder is chosen at Lakeside is a name is brought up before the present elders, and we discuss that that man, and what we're looking for uh, would be desire, would be godliness in his life, but we're also looking to see how the congregation already responds to him, meaning that even if he doesn't have the title of elder, uh, is he teaching are people responsive to his teaching? Do they seek his counsel and his wisdom? Do they already look at him as a leader? Why is that important? Because we never make an elder. God raises a man up. We simply come alongside and recognize who's called to be an elder. And one way to recognize that is to see, is he leading already? I compare it to uh, the scriptures, the uh, Scriptures are inspired. Many years ago, church councils uh, made decisions concerning uh, which books of the Bible they recognized as inspired, and then were put in the canon of Scripture. But those councils did not make the Scriptures inspired; they already were inspired. They simply recognize what was obvious. That's all we do: we recognize what's obvious. That this man has been called to be an elder. So. What areas of his life do we look at and do we evaluate as a congregation? Well, I went over the 20 areas, but I think you can put them in categories. You look at his personal life. What is he like in terms of godliness? How does he get along with other people? His marriage, is he a man who has a good marriage? Is he committed to that one woman in his life? What about his relationship with his children? You can tell a lot about how a man will lead based on how he lead in the church, based on how he leads his children. And what about his relationship not only with believers, but what about unbelievers? Does he have a good testimony with them? Do they, do they know that he is ethical in his business dealings? Is he a good neighbor? What well, What is he like when he's not in the church or in a church building, meeting with God's people? But that's not all. Let me take it a step further. In addition to having a desire to be an elder, in addition to having the godly qualifications to be an elder, there is a third uh, issue that we look at. Paul lists two more qualifications for being an elder which really have nothing to do with character, nothing to do with godly character makeup. And we have to look at this, and this is important, and some churches don't consider this, but it is vital. Two areas we look at. First, He must demonstrate, Paul said, skill in teaching the Bible. That's what Paul means when he says apt to teach or able to teach. Now, that's not a character issue. Most Christians do not have the gift of teaching the Bible, and they can be as godly as they choose to be. So teaching does not mean that you're godly, but a man who would be an elder needs to have the spiritual gift of teaching the Bible at at some level. At some level, he needs to be skilled in doing this and this gift would manifest itself by virtue of the fact that the man is accurate and clear in his teaching and those who sit under his ministry want to hear him and they are spiritually benefited by his teaching ministry. Secondly, we look at the, uh, in addition to having skill as a teacher, Paul says he must not be a new convert. Now, every one of us comes into the Christian life as a new convert, and so this is not a godliness issue, but new converts cannot serve as elders because they haven't had their character tested long enough. And there's no date set for this. You don't, you don't look and say, well, he's got six months, he's got a year. You'll just know it. You'll see how he handles adversities, how does he handle conflicts with people, how does he handle prosperity, how how does he handle uh, differences of opinion, how does he operate when there's a trial, does he fall apart or does he seek God's grace, all that, time will just reveal that, but you don't put a new convert in the position of an elder, Paul says primarily because he's going to be prone to being lifted up with pride. He just can't handle it. He shouldn't be elevated to a position of authority over his peers. Not yet. Now, this is where we left off last week. So up to this point, we have examined two essential issues concerning the men through whom Christ rules his church. First, we've seen that he rules his church through a plurality of elders, numerous elders that he raises up in each local assembly. Secondly, we've seen that these plural elders must Be godly. They must meet the qualifying standards set down by the Apostle Paul. But there is a third essential issue about the men that Christ rules his church through. And and really, folks, it's the heart of the matter. It's really all of this to get to this point. Because up to this point, we haven't really said how Christ rules through these men. How does he do it? This is the way. Christ rules his church by, note this, the written word Of God. And He does this as godly elders teach His word to their congregations. That's how He does it. In other words, Jesus leads and directs His church from heaven by His written word, which He has inspired. And He makes sure that that word is made clear to His people by the various elders in the various local churches. See, this is really the most crucial and vital matter when it comes to this issue and question of how does Christ rule his people? He does it by governing his people through the authoritative word His Bible. That's why I said sola scriptura is so critical. It's not an outdated issue. It is the issue of Calvin's day. It is the issue of, of our day. Because why does he do this? Why is this so critical? Because the Bible accurately and sufficiently reveals Christ's heart and mind. So that every Christian can know what Jesus wants him to do. That's how he communicates to us. It's not visions today, it's not dreams, it's not extra revelation, it is the written word of God. In other words, the written words of Scripture are just as authoritative as if Jesus Christ were standing in our presence and verbally speaking to us. Now some of you may own red letter editions of the Bible. They put the words of Jesus in red and everything else is in black. You know, that may be helpful for you to see what Jesus said, but the words of Christ are no less or more authoritative than the rest of the Bible. It's all the word of God. It's all the word of God. So the question is then, if the Bible is indeed the word of God and Christ rules his church through this written authoritative word, how can his people know what his word means so that they can obey him? Well, the answer is they can know it, Because in addition to their own responsibility to spend time reading and studying the Bible, Christ has given them elders for the specific purpose of teaching them the word of God with accuracy, with skill, and with insight. These elders are God's gifts to the church to open the word of God to us so that we might know the Lord's will as he dictates our lives from heaven.
1: In Romans chapter 10, Paul said, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? In this passage, Paul was specifically addressing evangelism and salvation, but the principle applies as well to teaching and spiritual growth. We have a nation of churches whose members seem to be just as biblically illiterate as the general population. And that's profoundly sad. We need churches who will choose leaders who are able and eager to teach God's Word. This is Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. I'm glad you were here today as we've been thinking about what the Bible says about the nature of the church. Lakeside is at 1893 Sunset Point Road, so if you're looking for a church home and live in the area, why not come on over and see if maybe this is what you're looking for. Sunday morning services begin at 1040. And if you're just passing through, you're also very welcome. If you'd like more information, call 727-239-0306 or visit the website www.lakesidechapel.com. That's 727-239-0306 or lakesidechapel.com. I also want to take a moment to tell you about our verse-by-verse website, versebyverseradio.org. We have hundreds of previous broadcasts available there. So if you miss something and want to get caught up, click on our message archive tab. And if you feel God is leading you to help support this ministry, we try to make that simple as well on the giving page of our website. We have the convenient PayPal link that offers the choice of a special one-time gift or setting up regular monthly giving. You do not need a PayPal account of your own to use this service. Whatever you do decide to do, we hope you will continue your regular giving to your local church. The web address once more is versebyverseradio.org. 1 Timothy 3 lists the character traits to look for in deacons and elders. In verse 2, Paul said that elders must be, among other things, able to teach. The Greek uses a very emphatic word here. They said must be able. That's one of the big differences between elders and deacons, teaching. Teaching. It may be from the pulpit, it may be in a Sunday school class, it might be in a small group, or maybe just one-on-one over a cup of coffee. But elders, if they are to shepherd their flock, need to be able to impart Bible knowledge to the people under their care. This is Jerry Peterson. When we read the book of Acts, one of the words that keeps popping up is teaching. Again and again we find accounts of the
0: Apostles,